0: Not often that you probably can remember exactly where you were uh, when you first read a passage of the Bible. But when uh, this passage got sent to me as the passage that we were going to be looking at this morning, I can really remember the first time that I connected with this story, this really tough part of David's life. Um, I had gone uh, the summer, my first summer at university, I had at the end of that summer gone to work in Canada for a year uh, for the summer, at a Christian camp out there called Pioneer Camp. I wasn't yet a Christian, but it was kind of part of my faith journey had led me to going out there. And while I was out working uh, in that camp in Canada, uh, I actually became a Christian and invited Jesus into my life finally. And um, uh, what I used to do, because I was still 19 and full of energy and full of life and vitality, was every morning at six o'clock in the morning, I would go and sit. Uh, is there a picture somewhere? Next slide. There you go, oh, back back to the photo, fabulous. So I'd go and sit on a little jetty uh, at six o'clock in the morning, uh, which went out into the lake, which was where the camp was set around and I would read my Bible. Because at that point in my life, I thought that six o'clock in the morning was a really holy time to go and do something like read your Bible. Now, if I'm still asleep at six o'clock in the morning, it's a win in life. And that's a lie in. Um, Just so we can kind of break the myth of people up the front being on a pedestal. I will never read my Bible at six o'clock in the morning at this life stage that I'm currently in. Um, Generally, I'm shouting at someone by six o'clock in the morning. Um, But I was full of energy and there I was uh, out on the jetty uh, reading my Bible. And I remember reading this story and I knew of David, you know, having kind of dabbled in Sunday school at different points uh, throughout my kind of childhood and you know David was the child who had gone and he had stood against the giant Goliath and he knew that as a small boy he could not defeat this enemy but yet because of the faith and the assurance he had of his relationship with God he knew that he could go and defeat this giant Goliath and bring victory to his army. An amazing man that we read amazing stories of. And that we continue to read stories of David as the great king, the great warrior, the man who did phenomenal, phenomenal things. David, who had spoken over him the promise that his bloodline would lead to Jesus further down the line. The son of God coming down into this earth. Amazing promises spoken over Jesus, over David, sorry. And yet, This is one of the only times, this story that Andy has just read to us, that we hear of David fasting. Now, fasting was part of the culture that David grew up in. Uh, There were public fasts, there were private fasts. You read a lot in the Old Testament of fasts that happened for specific things, to fight wars, when people needed to go and declare things to kings. They would gather their people to fast. Every autumn, David would have walked through the Day of Atonement, a day of public fasting across the nation, where people fasted and they prayed and they wept in prayer and repentance to God for the sins that they had committed. It was a day of atoning where sacrifice took place, where a goat was let out into the desert as the scapegoat to take away the sins that people had gone through. This was part of David's culture And yet here is the only overt time that the Bible talks of David fasting. Now, for those of you who are in small groups and community groups uh, who have been using the brilliant booklet, the Living Life Well booklet that's been put together to go through this series that we've been looking at as a church, You've probably been discussing fasting, uh, looking, using those questions in your groups. And if you're anything like my group, it might be that some of the conversations that have come up is actually when we think of the spiritual practices we're looking at this year, we see fasting as the holy one. Because if you're really close to God, and if you're really going for it in your relationship with God, then you're going to be fasting because fasting is the really sorted holy one. Someone in my group said to us the other day, oh, I'm just not close enough to God in my life at the moment to be fasting. But yet here we see a picture of David where he is desperate. It says in desperation, he was broken. He was physically laying on the floor in his brokenness. And this is when God says, we're going to include in the Bible this bit that David fasted. Because David didn't fast out of his holiness. David in this moment was fasting out of his complete and utter brokenness that we can be real with God. We can be real in our fasting. It doesn't have to be when we're sorted and we're close to God, actually we can put this practice in our life. This is a practice that for all of us, we can put into our life now in our brokenness, in our holiness, in our completeness, in our desperation, wherever we are. Because David is so aware of the events that he has just uh, led to this point where Nathan has come to him and confronted him with his sin. And in confession, in verse 13, David cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, David has gone through a whole chain of events where he has walked further and further away from God. We read in the passages kind of leading up to these events of these wars that David had won, the victories, the great victories that he had won. Only a few chapters earlier in chapter seven, we see Nathan coming to David and declaring amazing promises over his life. That In chapter seven, verse 13, Nathan says to David that God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever through David's bloodline. And then for whatever reason, whether it was his complacency, for whatever reason, we don't know. We start this chain of events where we read that in the springtime, the time where kings usually go out to war, David chose not to, that he stayed behind. For many of us we will then be familiar with the rest of the story. For some, it will be the first time we've heard it. And if it is the first time, what happens is he chooses not to go out to war. He stays behind. He sees a woman bathing. He lusts after her. He calls for her to come to him. They end up sleeping together. She gets pregnant and he tries to cover it up. He plots a plan to bring her husband back, but that doesn't work. And so he ultimately ends up getting her husband killed. So he goes through this whole chain of events of lust, adultery, murder, deception. And then we reach this point. David is completely broken. And we have to remember as well that these are not events that have just happened. It's not like David has been carrying around these in his heart just for a couple of weeks or a couple of chapters, the length of time it's taken us to read it in the Bible. These are things that David has been carrying around with him for at least nine months. By the time Nathan comes to David, the baby has already been born. There would at least have been nine months of David carrying around with him that guilt of the sin that he has committed. And for each of us here, we probably all can think of those times where we know we've messed up, we've done something wrong, however big, however little, and we've carried it around with us. And we have that burden within us, or that stirring of knowing we've done something wrong, and yet we carry on. And for everyone else from the outside, David looked like the great king, the great warrior. And so God uses Nathan to come and speak directly into his heart, to bring David to this point of confession, to this point of brokenness. And so for David in this moment, his fasting isn't a sign of, look how holy I am. His fasting becomes an outward physical response to the feelings in the depths of his soul, that he doesn't know what to do with it. So he pleads before God and he lies on the ground broken, And for many of us here this morning, actually, we might be able to say, yeah, we know how that feels. We've come here this morning and we feel broken. We've just about managed to get ourselves up off the floor to come in here today, but we feel broken. Maybe we see brokenness in those around us that we love. And that in itself breaks us and makes us feel the pain of those people. It might be that we feel broken for our nation and in the events of this week, broken for the world around us. And so we say to God, we don't even know what to cry out. And yet God says, sometimes you don't have to cry out. What is going on inside you, you can express in a different way. That we can use fasting as a practice to say, God, we don't know what to do with this, but we just lay it before you in our brokenness because we can be real with God that this physical response to the deepest cries in our hearts doesn't have to come from a place other than just being totally and utterly real before God, where we're at with what we're walking through. So David was being real with God. He was fasting out of his brokenness. But also we can be open to God. We can be open to the work that God wants to do in us in the times when we fast and when we come before him in prayer and worship and fasting. Again, in the Living Life Well booklet, and if you haven't got it, do take it home with you today. I think there's some copies out on the front. Uh, In the little paragraph at the beginning that talks about fasting, it says that one of the misconceptions that we can so easily have is that fasting is a way of trying to twist God's arm. That because we can so often see it as the holy practice, the one that we do when we're really close to God, we think that, well, if we're going to do it and we do it regularly, then God will definitely answer all of our prayers because that's what it's about. This is a practice that we're using so we can say, yeah, God, come on, you do what we want to happen in our own lives. Yet as David lay broken, pleading on the ground before God... God did an incredible work in reaching right into the depths of David's soul. As David cried from his own depths out to God, God reached in and he said, David, I'm going to do an amazing work in your character. That through these events, through this time that David spent on the ground broken, God came and met with him. He realigned David's heart to that of his own. The psalm, Psalm 51, is a psalm that was written by David in parallel to the events that were taking place that we hear of in this passage that Andy read to us earlier. A really incredible psalm that begins with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin." A really incredible psalm where David in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of being confronted with some awful things that he's done in his life where he has turned his back on God so many times and carried it around with him for so many months. David is able to say, God, I come before you. I want to know what it is again to have that relationship with you, to know you in my life in the way that I have known you in my life. He writes, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain it. What incredible work is going on within David in that moment. Knowing that he's asking and saying to God, restore to me what I had knowing that I can come to you in prayer and confession. As one commentary writes, in the Psalms of Lament, Psalm 51 stands out because the typical accusation of the enemy and the accusation of God are absent. This is purely a coming before God to grow deeper with him. And all of these practices that we are looking at this uh, season in our church life for this year are practices which are not there so we can learn how to twist God's arm more. They're not practices that are there so that we can learn how we can get the stuff that we want more. These are practices, tools that God has given us so that we can grow in a deeper understanding of what it truly means to live this life as a son or a daughter of God. To live this life knowing that God is with us. And in this moment, there is this realigning going on within David's life. And actually, sometimes that can jar a little bit with the culture, which we live in now. I don't know how many of you read, but um, uh, last month there was a report written in one of the national newspapers. And it was an interview with a guy called Reverend Dr. Peter Phillips, and I'm going to read his job title from the piece of paper because I couldn't learn it. So Reverend Peter Phillips is the director of the Research Centre for Digital Theology at St. John's College in Durham. That's quite a mouthful for when you're filling in your insurance claims. But one of the things that uh, he does in his department and they've like kind of researched over the last period of time is actually how is the Bible, how is the Christian faith being used by people in today's society? What are we using to connect with the Christian faith? And one of the specific things that he talks about in this interview is the use of social media. And uh, up until the last five years, the key verse that was replicated over all forms of social media was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, uh, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's quite a well-known verse. There are many shops that used to print it on the bottom of their bags. It's used time and time again. But in the last five years, there has been a dramatic shift in what is used on social media to present the Christian faith. Anyone have a guess now at what the most used verse is? No, there's a whole load of verses in the Bible. So it's, you know, it's quite a hard, hard ask. Um, the most replicated and used verse nowadays across the nine major Western countries who would probably call themselves Christian countries is Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That now is the most replicated verse for the last five years across many of the major Western countries. And as they researched and they looked into that, they said, actually, what we found is because what people want is a faith that gives them what they want. And that verse fits in beautifully with that because out of context, and it is an encouraging verse. I'm not saying let's not use it to encourage one another. It's a brilliant verse. It is there to encourage us. But actually, it kind of tells us what we want, because it says to us that in all circumstances, God will prosper you. He'll give you the plans that you want, and everything will be great. And actually, that isn't what life is always like. And many of us here can uh, give testimony to actually that hasn't been our Christian journey. When I was 19 and sitting on a jetty in the middle of a camp in Canada, surrounded by loving Christians who were looking out for me, brilliant. Life was great. Life was fantastic. I could sing from the mountaintops how brilliant God was. Many years on, 21 years on, life is still good. God is still good. But I've walked through many broken moments where I've been on the floor Because actually having a relationship with God isn't about having a genie in a bottle where we rub the lamp and all our wishes are granted. These tools and these practices are here so that we can grow into a deeper understanding of God. And as we grow in our depth and understanding of our relationship with God, so we can go and share more of him with those around us. So we can be real with God. However we are, whatever we're walking through, he knows and we can come before him. We can be open to God. We can say, God, we want to use these tools and these practices to know more of you in our own lives. Now, the amazing thing that Andy read in the passage from 2 Samuel is that the work that God did in David's life enabled him to get up off the floor. It enabled him to get up to eat again and to say, I will continue worshipping God. Even though what I'd come before him hadn't happened, God has still done a great work in my life. And so I am able to get up off the floor. That might not be everybody's experiences right now, but God does know. And whether you have got up off the floor or whether you're still on the floor, God says he's with you. But I guess uh, for many of us here, uh, the bit that really is hard and that jars with us is as we read uh, the passage That the child died. And I remember sitting out on the jetty uh, in uh, in Canada at like six o'clock in the morning, or maybe 10 past six, because I'd read the passage by this point, and reading that. And I didn't think that was going to be the end of the story. Because I was a young Christian and I thought everything was going to be fantastic, and I thought God was going to answer everything exactly the way I wanted it to happen. And so, when I read that David was lying on the floor fasting and pleading with God for the life of the child, I read that passage for the first time with the hope in my heart that it was all going to be okay and that suddenly a miracle was going to happen because that's what I thought was going to happen. And then it didn't. And 21 years later, having walked through miscarriage and having seen many other people go through pain, that still is a hard verse to read. And I remember at the time going to one of the other leaders. At the camp in Canada and saying, I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with this verse? I feel really sad because I can't remember what her name was, but I can really picture her. She had lots of gorgeous uh, auburn hair. And she said to me, Sarah, what you're reading there is not the story that you're living in now. Because David lived under Levitical law where he knew that there was punishment and often punishment ended in death. But we live in the light of the cross and in the incredible freedom, and the incredible story that gives us. And she said to me, Sarah, go back and read chapter 12, and read verses 13 through to 14. And she said, read it with this in mind, that a son has died, that every time you do something wrong, the punishment has already been taken. And I remember going back and wrestling with it, but Then reading it and reading and thinking to myself, actually, I live now with the verses maybe looking a little bit more like this. That I would come before God and say, God, I've sinned against you. I've messed up. I've done things I know I shouldn't have done. I've hurt people. I've upset people. I've lied. I've done stuff which has separated me from you or I've walked away from you. And then God responds, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because of the times that you have walked away from God and because you have turned your back on me, my son will die. And what an amazing truth that is, that God loves each one of us so much that he said, I love you. I know you're going to mess up. I know that you're not always going to get it right. But because I want to know you, because I want to be in relationship with you, I will send my son to take that punishment so that no one else has to be punished in that way ever again." because bad things happen and we have seen that so tragically even in our world this week but they were not sent by God they were products of the world the fallen world which we live in but God says I am with you in the midst of them and every time you mess up the punishment has already been taken because of the love that I have for you I will send my only son to take away every time you have done something wrong Mark Iaconelli writes, through our worship, fasting and prayer, we realise that ultimately, grace can never be earned. Like all gifts, it can only be received, requiring that I simply open my hands and trust. That that is what the gift that has been given to each one of us on Easter Day morning in our joint gathering that we're going to be having in a few weeks, we're going to be having baptisms out on the grass out there. An amazing celebration for anybody, whether you are a new Christian, whether you have been a Christian for many years and just haven't got around to being baptised. An amazing celebration of saying, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live my life for you, God. But I remember about four or five years ago, a lovely girl called Lucy, who used to be part of our church congregation, just before she was making the decision to get baptised, came to me and she said, I can't do it, Sarah, because I'll go down into the water and then I'll come up and I'll have to keep going down and up every week and every time I get something wrong. And we said to her, no, that's not what it's about. You go down into the water and you come up saying, I'm a child of God and I want everyone to know that I love God and I'm following him in my life. And yes, you're not going to get it right. The encouraging thing is, even post all of this stuff that happened to David, he didn't always get it right. He did not live the rest of his years until he finally went to be with God in heaven as a perfect man. He still messed up. And we will. And I remember that conversation with Lucy and saying, do you know what? Go down once, come back up and know that you are a child of God and that you are loved completely and utterly whatever goes on in your life and it might be that there are some of you here today who are thinking about getting baptised and it might be that you're just not quite sure if you want to do it, if you can do it, if you're in the right holy place to do it, this is the encouragement to you this morning, take that step because God says I sent my son to die once and for all, that as David lay broken being real before God so can we. As David let God do an incredible work in his character to realign himself with the person that God wanted him to be, so can we. This morning in all of our brokenness, all of our dissatisfaction, all of the apathy, all of our discontentment, all of the sheer and utter exhaustion that we might be feeling this morning, God says, but I love you and I'm working on your character because I want you to know me more and more, not because I want you to be perfect just as we want to know our children more and more, I want to know you more and more. I'm just going to lead us uh, in a few moments of silence and prayer just to maybe bring before God one of those three points this morning. It might be that you just want to say, God, I'm broken, and I want to be real with you. It might be that you might want to say, God, I want to know more of you in my life. I want this Living Life Well series to be a series that is drawing me closer to you. Or it might be even this morning that you really want to know what it is to live in the grace of God, maybe even for the first time, to really know what it means for God to be your father in heaven, to say, when you mess up, your child will not die because my child died already for you. So I'm just going to lead us in a, in a moment of um, silence and then we're going to go into a time of sung worship. And if you do want to go and join with the prayer team for anything that you've come with this morning or that has come up this morning, please do just go and move to the back and the prayer team would love to meet with you. So Father, we thank you. Thank you that through this example in David's life, we know that we can come, with you, come to you however we are, whatever we're feeling. Father, thank you that we can be open to you and all that you want to do in and through us. And thank you that we can know the grace of God in our lives, knowing that you love us so completely that you sent your son to die for us in place of any punishment that we might take. And just in the silence, let's just bring those things before God, whatever they might be.